ourselves in Luke chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 17 of Luke 5 through Luke chapter 6, verse 11. We're taking a little bigger chunk this morning, as we're going to see. There is a common theme that unites all of these wonderful little accounts that Luke has for us. As you're turning, uh, we first of all, I want to thank you. Uh, we got to talk to Nathaniel this week, and some of you have written letters to him, so thank you for that. Uh, that makes his mom and his dad's uh, heart very glad, so thank you. Uh, for your kindness and your graciousness to us. Uh, he's doing well and uh, likes what he's doing very much. So we're grateful for that. Um, also, we covet your prayers this week. Amy and I are flying to Kentucky on Wednesday. We're going for different purposes. Uh, we tried, we've, we've sort of the last couple years, uh, tried to have Amy's visits be a little more regular to go see her dad, to check in and to be with her dad and then with, with, uh, with her sisters. I'm going, uh, this is I think the third or fourth year that I've gone now, for the practical shepherding, uh, they, they do a retreat for pastors, and this year it's for pastors and, wives, and their wives. Um, and it's, it's an interesting ministry, it's a ministry that helps guys who find themselves in really difficult kinds of situations, they're doing what we would call church revitalization. And so we'll get guys um, who are just there in really tough spots, um, they're not necessarily seeing a ton of fruit. And so the purpose of the retreat is, yes, to do some equipping and some training, but more than anything, hopefully to encourage them in the work to which the Lord has called them. And so uh, I'm going to be, I'll be speaking on Friday morning and then again on Friday afternoon. Uh, we'll come back on, on Saturday, uh, but covet your prayers for that time this week. These are good guys. And these are good guys trying to do uh, the Lord's work in places in which uh, the soil is just really, really rough. And so pray uh, that they would indeed, uh, it isn't just about um, equipping them, that's part of it. But the, the bigger purpose of this is to encourage them and to sort of help strengthen their hands for the work to which the Lord has called them. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Luke chapter 5, verse 17, through chapter 6, verse 11. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? For who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, 
and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some ears of corn, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with a withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now, uh, Lord, as we look to your word, we pray that your spirit would accompany the preaching of your word. We pray uh, that, Lord, as we uh, try to look at this text, maybe from a little different perspective, Father, would you help us to see the ways in which we are prone just as much as the scribes and Pharisees are, to trying to superimpose our own expectations on who your son is and how he does his work. For we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Expectations are very powerful things. They should be. In the words of Wendell Berry, we should understand that expectations are nothing but bucketfuls of smoke. But we don't. We create outcomes in our mind, whether those outcomes be relational, vocational, or dealing with our favorite sports team. And when we do so, we're trying to exercise dominion in our world, just not in a good way. And when inevitably those expectations fail to materialize, we respond poorly. We get angry. We lament. We mourn. We wonder what in the world it is that God is doing and what it is that God is up to. Our text for this morning is about the kind of conflict that's created when expectations are not met. Word about Jesus has spread to the halls of power. He has been noticed. His platform as Rabbi Healer is trending, and he has gone viral. And so now the powers that be come, and they're going to check him out. And one of the things that I hope you saw in each of those stories, the thing that unites them all together, is the fact that the scribes and the Pharisees do not like what it is that Jesus is doing. He does not meet their expectations. Why don't the religious elite like Jesus? What has he done exactly to make them want to cancel him? Well, this morning, we want to look at this text through the eyes of Jesus' opponents and try to figure out where all this animosity is coming from. They just didn't wake up one day and go, hey, we're not going to like that guy. No, Jesus is doing things and he's saying things that is creating a particular response in them. And what we want to realize this morning is that isn't just an issue for the scribes and the Pharisees. It can be an issue for us as well. That brings us to our big idea, which is on page five in your bulletin. Jesus is not always what we expect. Jesus is not always what we expect. Four points we want to make this morning. Uh, the first reason that the scribes and the Pharisees, and at times we get upset about Jesus and at Jesus, is because he claims unique authority. He claims unique authority. There's a really interesting thing that Luke is doing to give us some sense of the kind of showdown that's going on. Again, it's subtle, but we don't want to miss it. He tells us in verse 17 of chapter 5, on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees, teachers of the law, were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. In other words, these are the powers that be. This is the elite these are the people who, in their minds, hold the keys to the kingdom. And these are the people who represent God and the people who speak for God. And so they're coming to check Jesus out. Word about him has spread, as we saw last week. He's cleansed a leper. The last guy to do that was Elisha. Jesus is doing things that have not been done. 
in over 400 years. And already the whispers, the rumors, the, the murmuring about, could this guy be the Messiah? Those things have spread. And now those whispers have reached the highest halls of power. So it's interesting then, isn't it, how John, excuse me, how Luke concludes that verse. He says, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Let's understand what we're seeing. This is a confrontation of power against power. Those who think they have it, those who think they represent and speak for God, are going to come head to head with one who does indeed have power, who does indeed represent and speak for God because he is God. And so in verse 21, after the friends have lowered their paralytic buddy down, after they've cleared up, made a hole in the roof, and after they've lowered him down, and Jesus has seen their faith, not the faith of the paralytic, but the faith of the friends, he declares in verse 20, your sins are forgiven you. Now, when we talk about Jesus not meeting expectations, you can imagine, I think, the consternation or the bewilderment or the disappointment of the four friends. They go through all the trouble of toting him on the mat. They go through all the trouble of creating the hole in the roof. They go through all the trouble of lowering him, probably in a non-OSHA approved fashion, but they lower him down through the roof and get him delivered safely so that Jesus can make their friend walk again. And what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven you. Imagine the friends being like, dude, that's great but not really what we're looking for here. We were hoping that you could make him walk. Well, it's interesting that in verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees hear it, and they go, oh, wait a minute. This guy is blaspheming because there's only one person who can forgive sin, and that person is God. Now, it's interesting, verse 22 Jesus perceives their thoughts. That alone should have let them know that they were in over their heads. But he answers them, why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, you arise, take up your, take up your mat and walk. And then he says, verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the man, take up your bed. And walk. Jesus works from the seen to the unseen. The healing and the power made manifest in the healing is, made, is a picture for us that it's, it's proof, it's a picture that Jesus can indeed forgive sin, that he does indeed have the authority to do that. In our Old Testament reading for this morning, Jenny read for us that at the waters of Marah, Israel learned that God is their healer. So here is Jesus who has the authority not only to heal, 
but he has the authority to forgive sins. Now, please note, in verse 21, when the scribes and the Pharisees ask the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. Now, they were wrong in their accusation of, uh, of, of, of blasphemy against Jesus. But they're absolutely right in their question of who can forgive sins but God alone. Well, that's true. Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus has told them in verse 24, by the title that he uses, he's the son of man. And then he demonstrates for them through the healing of the paralytic that he is indeed God. And because he is God, he has the kind of authority that only the creator has over his creation. When I was in college, I remember having to read uh well, reading John Piper, and then Piper quoted Abraham Kuyper, and Kuyper very famously said, you know, there is not one inch over all of creation over which Jesus does not stretch his hands and say, this is mine. See, our problem isn't that we don't think that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Our problem is we don't think Jesus has authority to work in any sphere outside of our sins. Yeah, Jesus forgives my sins, but Jesus really doesn't have anything to say in terms of how I spend my money. Yeah, Jesus has forgiven my sins, but he needs to sit down and don't say anything when it comes to how I use my time. Or how I think about my marriage, or how I raise my kids, or how I view any number of other things. For example, what I'm going to do with my life vocationally. But friends... The fact that God is creator and that he has the authority to heal and the fact that he has authority to forgive sins means he has authority full stop. And there's nothing, there's no sphere, there's not one inch over all of creation over which Jesus does not stretch his hands and say, this is mine. He claims unique authority and it angers the scribes and the Pharisees. But I wonder, does it anger you too? When Jesus claims authority in your life, do you grumble as the scribes and the Pharisees do? Secondly, we see that Jesus keeps shady company. Jesus keeps shady company. He goes and he's he's uh, gathering for himself this group of disciples, this group of guys who are going to travel with him. They're going to hear him speak. They're going to attend to both his life and his teaching. They're going to be his followers. And in verse 27, we're told that he sees a tax collector named Levi, uh, otherwise known as Matthew. And Jesus says, follow me. Levi does what good disciples do. He left everything and he followed him. Now, Levi, in order to celebrate this new life and his new calling as a follower of Jesus, decides to have a feast at his house. And as he does, he invites his friends. Well, understand, if you're a tax collector, you don't have a lot of friends. Because nobody likes you. 
Nobody likes you for two reasons. One, nobody likes taxes. But two, nobody likes you uh, because you work for the Romans. Levi is a very Jewish name. So here's Levi. Here's a Jew who is in cahoots with the Romans. See, it's Levi's taxes that pays the salary of the Roman soldiers who are living there in Israel. It's the taxes that Levi collects that funds the oppression that is represented by the Roman Empire. And if that wasn't bad enough, what Rome did is Rome would basically say, okay, Levi, here's the deal. Every week we're going to collect X amount from you. So we don't care what you charge people. Just make sure you charge X amount. So what did tax collectors do? They overcharged. They charged you more. If they knew they had to collect, say, $100 worth of taxes by the end of the week, they may have collected $500 in taxes by the end of the week. $200 going in their own pocket, $200 going to the, the local Roman garrison, because after all, those are the guys who are going to lean on you if you don't pay your taxes. And then the rest going to Rome. It was a corrupt system. It was very much an unpatriotic system. And Jesus calls Levi not just to follow him, but Jesus now goes to his house and fellowships with him. See, having a meal with someone in the ancient world was more than just, hey, uh, let's go grab a burger. Or maybe we can grab some wings and a beer after work, something like that. Uh, no, it was, it, was much, it was much more of a commitment. There was much more of an association with table fellowship. It was much more intimate. And so when we're told in verse 29 that Jesus reclines at the table with them, Jesus is making himself comfortable sharing this sort of intimate and familiar scene of table fellowship with a group of really, really shady people. Bad company corrupts good character or good morals. Maybe you've heard this. Uh, you end up becoming like the five people you spend the most time with. So here's Jesus who claims to be the Son of Man. Here's Jesus who has this wonderful teaching and the power to heal. And these are the people he's hanging out with. It's no wonder that the scribes and the Pharisees grumble. By the way, it's an interesting verb. Uh, the verb actually sounds like grumble, 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 grumble. I mean, it's, it's, it's like that. It's a perfect tense. So they grumble and they keep, they keep grumbling. It's like most of us on a Monday. They grumble. And note, they don't talk to Jesus. Did you note who they, who they direct their grumbling to? The disciples. Why does your master do this? And Jesus then answers them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, they don't understand Jesus' mission. They think that being the Messiah means that he's going to overthrow the Romans and restore the kingdom to Israel. By the way, the disciples think that too. They don't understand it until the book of Acts. They misunderstood Jesus' mission, and I wonder at times if we don't as well. Some of my uh, heroes of the faith, though I think now if you can be angry in heaven, they are. And that would be the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley, for the movement that bears their name, both Methodism and to a certain extent Wesleyanism, have gotten so far from the theology that they first espoused that, again, if you can be angry, I think the Wesley brothers and Martin Luther are just fit to be tied. John and Charles Wesley started their ministry among people that the rest of uh, then, quote-unquote, Christian culture in England wanted nothing to do with. They started preaching outdoors to Welsh coal miners who had uh, the unfortunate, uh, they had two strikes against them. One, they were Welsh. Two, they were coal miners. They weren't polite company. They weren't the right kind of people. And they were not welcome within the Church of England. And so the Wesleys were like, hey, these people need Jesus too. So they start preaching outdoors. They're up at like five in the morning and they're out, out uh, in the fields before these guys go to work and they start preaching the gospel and these folks get saved. And the Wesleys then look at the local church of England. And they're like, hey, uh, pastor, guess what? We got news for you. We got all these, we got like 50 people who come to faith in Jesus. They need to be catechized. They need to be baptized into the church. Can you handle that? You know what the Church of England said? No. No. And the Wesley said, well, that's a problem. And so uh, John and Charles Wesley formed not Wesleyan churches or Methodist churches. You know what they were called? Chapels. See, the church was not welcoming to people like the folks that they had introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they decided, no, uh, if they're not welcome in church, that's fine. They're welcome in chapel. Jesus kept shady company. The scribes and the Pharisees didn't get it. I'm afraid sometimes we don't either. Thirdly, their third beef is that he's too joyful and too festive. He's too joyful and he's too festive. First century Judaism was not uh, into the power of positive thinking. First century Judaism was not a religion of singing and dancing and tambourine playing. and uh, They were not into making a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. No, First century Judaism was in mourning, basically perpetually. And they were in mourning because, number one, they were living under the oppressive regime of the Romans. And number two, they were waiting for a Messiah to come and they were starting to wonder whether or not he was actually going to show up. And so they were somber, they were serious. They were aware of 
the reality of what we've read in the book of Jeremiah during Sunday school. Hey, we got kicked out of our own country. We underwent God's judgment and it was our fault. That was on us. And so first century Judaism was big into fasting. In fact, they had a set day of the week that they would fast. Usually on Fridays, that was their day of fasting before they observed the Sabbath. But Jesus' disciples don't fast. And so the scribes and the Pharisees come and they say, Hey, wait a minute. The disciples of John fast. The disciples of the Pharisees fast. Your disciples don't. And Jesus says to them, hey, listen, you, you have two problems. Number one, uh, you think this is a funeral. It's not. It's actually a wedding feast. When you go to a wedding feast, do you fast? I hope not. Last wedding we went to, there was uh, a lot of food, and it was really it was barbecue. It was really good food. So, yes, we, we fasted. No, we didn't. It was a day of feasting. It was a day of celebrating. It was a day of entering into the joy of the bride and the groom and of their respective families. But the second problem they have isn't just that they're at a funeral while Jesus and his disciples are at a wedding. The second problem they have is they're in the wrong covenant. They're in the old covenant, and Jesus, by his coming, is inaugurating the new covenant. And that's why you have those wonderful parables found in verse 36 about old uh, material and new material and old wine and new wine and old wineskins and new wineskins. Jesus is doing a new work. He is inaugurating the new covenant, and the new covenant is one that will bring joy. So I wonder this morning if I were to ask you, and I, I asked myself uh, this question this week, and I didn't particularly like the answer, um, but does joy characterize your life? And I don't mean happy. I don't mean you're one of those, those silly people who walk around and you've got some sort of like maddening smile on your face and like, oh, I'm great, man. I'll tell you, I'm a brother. Hey, I'm, 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 I'm above dirt, man. It's great. No, don't. Switch to decaf. Just do the rest of us a favor. But is your life characterized by joy? Not silliness, not optimism, but joy. See, I think with most of us, if you said, uh, what characterizes your life? We wouldn't say joy. We'd say things like anger or anxiety or drama. Love the drama. But Jesus here lets us know that, no, this is, this is about joy. The, the bridegroom is with them. Jesus came that they may have life and they may have it to the full. They may have it in abundance. Jesus came to fulfill all the covenant promises of God. Jesus came, as we're told by the Apostle Paul, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. 
Jesus is too joyful and festive. The scribes and the Pharisees don't like that. And I fear that we forget that our lives are to be characterized by this kind of joy. And fourthly and finally, Jesus pushes against the guardrails. He pushes against the guardrails. Uh, you know, if you've read the Ten Commandments, that one of them is that thou shalt remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, or observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so the final two episodes that we have that are going to get the scribes and the Pharisees riled up is how Jesus treats the Sabbath. And Jesus, again, uses these really powerful phrases. First of all, he speaks of himself in verse 5 of chapter 6 as the Son of Man. This is the second time now he's claimed that particular messianic title for himself. He's also the Lord of the Sabbath. So here we see Jesus letting them know that, hey, listen, whatever you think is going on with the Sabbath probably isn't right. And that's going to be an interesting confrontation because, again, the scribes and the Pharisees, the folks who were the leaders of first century Judaism, understood that it was the breaking of the law that had caused them to go into exile. It was the breaking of the law that had brought God's judgment upon them. And so here's what they did. They said, you know, here's, here's the thing. If breaking the Sabbath is part of God's law and we've experienced God's judgment, then here's what we want to do. If the commandment is, thou shalt honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy, then we're going to build a fence around the commandment. We're going to make a whole list of things that are going on to make sure that people don't break the commandment of the Sabbath. So we're going to say, on the Sabbath day, you can only walk so far, because if you walk further than that, you're doing work. And we're going to say things to people like people who are tailors. Hey, if you get up and you walk to church, but you find, as people who so sometimes do, that you stuck your needle in your thread in, in your garment and you're walking around with those implements of your work in your cloak, you've broken the Sabbath. So now all of a sudden they have all these ridiculous rules of what it looks like then to keep the Sabbath. And Jesus on these two occasions says, listen, you, you don't get what it's about. It's not about rule keeping, but the Sabbath points to him. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is for man, not man. For Sabbath. So he gives them this interesting occasion from their past. In verse 3, he's going to talk about David. David's on the run. He realizes King Saul wants to kill him. And so he's on the run from Saul and from his men. Uh, they come to the place where the showbread is at. He goes to the priest and he says, hey, uh, listen, I, I had to leave in a hurry. Uh, I, I, I didn't have a sword. I don't have any. Do you have anything? And the priests are like, hey, listen, all we have is the showbread that's on the altar. We're supposed to be the only people who eat it. But if you need it, go ahead. And he did. And then they want to know, is Jesus going to heal on the Sabbath? Because, of course, healing someone is doing work. They don't understand that works of mercy or fundamental needs of human life, those things are okay on the Sabbath. Youth sports, 
No. Lots of other things we do on the Sabbath? Probably not. But works of mercy and the fundamental needs of human life, those things are absolutely fine on the Sabbath. And what happens when Jesus pushes against those guardrails? What happens when Jesus breaks not the law of God, but the law that these men have created? Look at verse 11. They were filled with fury and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Have you ever been filled with fury at the claims of the Lord Jesus on your life? Has Jesus and his plan, not your own plan, has he ever angered you? You ever wondered what he was doing, what he was up to, why in the world he was uh, not agreeing with your plan to take over the world and to let everyone know of your universal, the universal scope of your awesomeness? Friends, if Jesus has never angered you, then I want to suggest to you this morning that the Jesus you're serving is not the Jesus of the Bible. It's probably a Jesus of your own making. Because Jesus claims unique authority, and he claims authority over everything. And we are really good as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve of wanting to take the authority that is rightly God's and claim it for ourselves. And so if there are times in your life in which the authority of Jesus has filled you with fury, I want you to know this morning that doesn't mean you're weird. It doesn't mean you lack faith. It doesn't mean that you're somehow apostate or that you don't know Jesus. It probably means that God in his grace and in his mercy is removing the Jesus of your own making and he's replacing it with the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus who has unique authority, the Jesus who is the Lord of the Sabbath, the Jesus who is the great physician, the Jesus who calls not the righteous but sinners to repentance. The scribes and the Pharisees did not understand what he was about. They didn't understand why he came. We're good at forgetting things as well. And so God, again, in his grace and his mercy, helps us to remember. He gives us every week a meal. And he reminds us that he came not to overthrow the Roman government or not to get the guy who's in the White House right now out of power so that our guy could get into power. No, Jesus came to die. And the really interesting thing about uh, the scope of Jesus' mission in that he came to die is that he calls us then to remember that, but in a way that is celebratory. Yes, at the table we remember the fact that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed. And yet, week after week, he calls us to family dinner. He calls us to this table a table that both remembers but also celebrates, a table that declares 
that this Jesus, who is the Son of Man and Lord of the Sabbath and great physician, this Jesus is coming again. Let's pray. Father, um, forgive us, for we're really good at taking our own expectations and making them, or trying to make them Lord and Master, when uh, you and your Son and your Spirit are Lord and Master, not us. Father, we understand, I hope, that this wasn't just the scribes and the Pharisees being um, just sort of overly uptight or power-hungry. But Father, every human being, when we rightly understand the claims that Jesus makes, we should be having the same kinds of responses, the same kinds of problems, the same kinds of questions. So Lord, we thank you that Jesus does not always meet our expectations. And we pray that we would be conformed not to what we think he ought to be, Father, we pray we would be conformed more and more into the likeness of his image. For we ask this in his name. Amen.